Does the Christian church in America have a future? Do we have a place in society? A purpose for being? Is the Christian church a concept whose time has passed? Is there hope for us? Last Tuesday, uh, uh, an article came into my inbox, How to Save the American Church. The implication, of course, is the American Church needs saving. The, the day before that, another had come into my inbox called The Death of Evangelism. And in that, it said, we are seeing the death of evangelism across denominational lines and in non-denominational churches. A few days later, a journalist chided those who turned to God in the wave of mass shootings. One TV host said mass shootings are part of the rise of violent Christian nationalism. Others, and you might have seen this, were very specific about what we could do with our prayers. As Dorothy said to her little scruffy dog, Toto. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Not Kansas. We're not in Maine in 1950. We're not in Maine 1970. We're not even in Maine 2000. Beloved, in our day, we have come to something very different than the normal that many of us grew up with. We are absolutely in a post-Christian America both behaviorally and attitudinally. And with the obvious shift in how our faith is understood and how it is portrayed, add to that the toll of a two plus years long pandemic, without a doubt the Christian church in America is hurting. And how could it not be? Those who like me and most pastors, some church leaders who consume this what's happening in the church sort of material will testify that the current forecast for the American church is mostly cloudy with a chance of collapse. <laughs> a good chance of collapse. But to borrow a line that is usually wrongly attributed to Mark Twain, reports of our death are greatly exaggerated. To the question I posed, at first, yes, the church has a future. Yes, the church has a place in society. Yes, we have a purpose for being. No, we are not a concept whose time is past. Yes, there is hope for us. There is hope for us, and we have a future because the church belongs to God. And the church not only belongs to God, the scripture tells us the church is being kept by God. And not only is the church being kept by God, the church is precious to God. God loves you. God loves his church. He loves you and he loves his church because you have been bought with a high price. The blood of his son, Jesus. And it was Jesus, we heard it in the scripture that Tarnia read, it was Jesus who declared to Peter that he would do what? Build his church. And the forces of evil will not prevail against it. Death itself will not prevail against it. So if you find yourself as a Christian a little despondent these days, perhaps a bit discouraged, even doubtful as you contemplate the state of the church and how it is viewed, 
Maybe you're here today and you're not a believer at all, but you have been honestly contemplating Christianity, wondering whether you ought to join this band, but now you're becoming a little skeptical. Or thinking that the tide of what appears to be public opinion, given that, it might be better if you just hold off, stay away. Well, you know what? No one would blame you for that. No one will blame you for being a bit discouraged. No one will blame you for being skeptical. No one will blame you for thinking, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to get on board what looks to me like a sinking ship. It doesn't really make sense, does it? But if that's you today, whether you're a believer or somebody contemplating Christ, hopefully you will be blessed and encouraged and able to hang in here for this series that we're about to begin. It's called Unstoppable. It's a study in the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church. Our forefathers in the faith labored for the gospel in turbulent times, in the midst of great hostility, ignorance, and opposition. There were questions about their future as well as their survival. And yet with seeming little influence and not much eloquence and definitely against the odds, God used the dedicated lives of first century believers to be his witnesses to change the world. There are a lot of disciples yet to be made, beloved. There are a lot of people yet to be saved. There are a lot of believers in need of being formed. There is a lot of serving that is left to do the world-changing, unstoppable mission of God continues in our day, and by His grace, we at United Baptist Church are part of it. Let's pray. Our Father, we gather to sit under Your Word and Your truth. We come here as Your people, a chosen people, and we praise You for choosing us. And we pray, Lord, that we might be good and honest ambassadors of Your truth and of Your grace that the beauty and the power that we see reflected in you and in your word might shine through our lives indeed, that it might be attractive to those who are looking for such things. God, we ask you to bless our time together as we continue in the study of your word. Open our ears and eyes and hearts to understand what it is you want us to receive this day. We do pray and ask in the name of Christ. Amen. So this morning we're going to begin a series of messages from the book of Acts. And uh, as is the case when we undertake a new book, which is our habit here to try to preach through books, we have to lay some groundwork. And so just by means of uh, setting the bar really low, these are usually the least scintillating messages you get in, the, in, a, in a church. So now that you are prepared to be bored, I hope I can beat that. Um, <laughs> But if not, it's a history lesson a, a little bit. Um, so this morning's message is called An Introduction to Acts, and there's a fill-in uh, blank sheet included in the bulletin for those who are helped by that sort of thing, help you take some notes and fill in the blanks. And also, fill in the blanks to be, you know, fill in the blanks give you a reason to pay attention. So, and don't do what I do when I get fill in the blank sheets and fill in silly words just to be funny and make your wife elbow you in the ribs. Hang in there with me. Introduction to Acts. Let's start with authorship. Who wrote this book? 
who wrote the book of Acts. Well, first thing I want you to understand is that Acts is a sequel, okay? So Acts is a sequel. It is really part two. It is a follow-up to the first book, which bears the name of the author of both books, and that author is Luke. So Acts is a sequel. It's, and, and I didn't actually plan on us going through the book of Acts at this time, although I've had it in my preaching calendar and I keep pushing it down the road. And yet we spent a little bit of time, you might recall, I hope you do, it wasn't that long ago, in Luke's gospel making the turn. And so this is a natural flow because Luke in Acts picks up where he left off in his gospel. So it's a sequel. It's written by a guy named Luke. What do we know about this guy named Luke? Well, we don't know a whole lot about him. We know this. We know he's an excellent writer. If you've read the Gospel of Luke or the Book of Acts, you know he's an excellent writer. We know he's a Christian, so he's a Christian convert. In Colossians 4, uh, 14, we read that he's a beloved physician. So that's where you get this idea that Luke is actually a doctor. Look, imagine that. He's a doctor and an excellent writer. I wonder how his penmanship was. <laughs> he didn't have as many scripts to write back then, for sure. Uh, Colossians also indicates that at times Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul in his missionary journey. So uh, in Acts 16, as we get through that, it'll be a while before we get there, but we're going to see the pronouns change, and we're going to see Luke using we. We, as in indicating that, that Luke is a participant in and a personal observer of at least a portion of what he's writing about here in the book of Acts. Uh, the date, when was Acts written? Well, we can't say specifically or for sure when it was written, but it seems that it was written sometime between A.D. 60 and A.D. 70. We say before A.D. 70... Because do you, do you recall at all what might have happened in A.D. 70? September of A.D. 70 was when Rome descended on Jerusalem and destroyed it. And in the book of Acts, we read about Jerusalem and we read about Rome, and there's absolutely no reference whatsoever to any sort of military conquest or invasion or disruption in the cities or anything like that. So we get the idea that this had to have been written before A.D. 70, or Luke would have included something like that. And perhaps more important than knowing what the date would be, we should understand that Acts covers a period of time of about 30 years, okay, from the birth to the expansion of the early church. So it's about 30 years that, that we'll re be reading about. Now, who was it written to? If you open the book of Acts, you'll see right away that it was written for or addressed to a fellow named Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus is in the prologue of the Gospel of Luke, and Theophilus is in the, is in the prologue of the book of Acts. Well, we don't uh, also know much about him. Obviously, God includes in his words the, the things we need to know, not the things that we want to know always. And uh, we do know this, that his name means lover of God. You get that from the Greek theos, right? God, theos, theology, the study of God. And phileo, which means love. Um, the city of Philadelphia is the city of what? Brotherly love. So, so that's where we get Theophilus, lover 
of God. Other than that, we kind of have to speculate about who this guy was or who he might have been, which is fun to do, but not necessarily always edifying. Some people think that he was a possible underwriter to Luke's work, that Luke was addressing him because he was the fellow who, so to speak, was paying the bills. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart have a nice book out, How to Read the Bible Book by Book. And in that, they make note of Luke's writing style, and they say this, in keeping with such prefaces in Greco-Roman literature, Theophilus was probably the patron of Luke Acts, thus underwriting its publication. So maybe Theophilus was the underwriter of Luke's work. It's possible also that he was a Roman official. So in his first book, in, his, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke says this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He refers to most excellent. So a study of that sort of periodic literature would lead us to believe that something uh, distinguishes Theophilus from the average person, that title most excellent is used elsewhere to honor leaders. Quite possibly, he was a ranking Roman official, and if not that, then he was a, otherwise an important individual. It's also possible that Theophilus was a new convert, and we get that from the, from the first book, from the Gospel of Luke, where Luke goes on to say, he's written these things, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So the Gospel of Luke to Theophilus was so that you can know this is real, this is true, you can count on this. That's why he wrote it, which makes some people believe, well, maybe he's a new believer. And as new believers, you've got a lot of questions that need to be answered and a lot of blanks that need to be filled in. And that's what Luke was doing for Theophilus and really for anybody who wants to understand Jesus. Pick up the book of Luke and read it through. So it's possible that he was a new convert and that he was of the sort who needed a little, his faith needed some shoring up. The reality here is, we're not going to know a lot about Theophilus. We don't have to know a lot about Theophilus, but someday you may want to have coffee with him in a new heaven, a new earth, and get this sort of information, which as an option would be pretty cool, don't you think? All right, what's the purpose of this book? What is the purpose? What is the emphasis? What is the book of Acts about? Well, honestly, it's about a lot of things, but uh, probably at its most basic, we can reduce it to this. Acts is about the birth about the growth, about the mission, and the message of the Christian church. It's about the birth, about the growth, about the mission, and the message of the Christian church. We call it Acts, which is short for Acts of the Apostles. The latter part of the book, you'll see as we get into it, is really about the Acts of one particular apostle, and that is Paul. But in fairness, Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, through the apostles and through many others. The Holy Spirit is referenced like 56 times in the book of Acts, blows away any of the other New Testament references to the Holy Spirit. As we make our way through this book, we're going to read about amazing miracles, signs, wonders, Guess what? Not one of them is attributable to human origin or human power. Not one. The miracles and the signs and the wonders involve human agency because, praise God, he works through us people. But never human origin and not human power because people don't do miracles. 
Okay? People don't do signs. People don't do wonders. When you turn on your TV and you see that person up there saying that they do signs and wonders and miracles, they're nutty. <laughs> they're wrong. And they're probably not telling you the truth. That isn't to say that signs and wonders and miracles don't happen. They do. But people don't do them. The Holy Spirit of God works through his people for these things. So Acts is about the birth of the church through the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Acts is about the growth of the church. And in it we see the perimeters of the church of, of Jesus moving outward as the disciples bear witness to the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. This, the perimeters are moving outward just as Jesus said they would. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. So the book of Acts moves outward in ever-expanding circles, and the book of Acts moves geographically from Jerusalem to Rome. We start in Jerusalem, we end in Rome, and it demonstrates in, in convincing and unmistakable ways that the good news of salvation through Jesus is for people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. That it is for both Jew and Gentile. And as we get in there, you're going to see some people hung up on that. I thought, I thought this was for us. And no, the message is God's going to call people from all over. And it's interesting that, that not everybody understood that. And some people were opposed to that. But you remember when when Simeon, the prophet in the Gospel of Luke, held the baby Jesus and basically said, ah, I can check out now. I've, you know, I've seen the glory of God. I've seen the salvation. What is he going to be? He's going to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles, to all men. The book of Acts is going to convince us of that for sure. Acts is about the mission of the church, which is multiplication, which is making disciples. That's what we're here for. The Great Commission, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. So if, if you're wondering why your uh, friends keep talking to you about Jesus or wanting you to have a relationship with Jesus, if you don't have one, it's because that's what our mission is. It is to make disciples. Acts shows us that with God all things are possible, nothing is impossible. Several times as we make our way through this book, we are going to see victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. We're going to see people in awful circumstances and situations with no remedy and no way out. And we're going to watch God come in and do what only God can do. Nothing is impossible with God. All things are possible with God. Acts shows us repeatedly that there's nothing in this world, no matter how it feels or seems to you, that is stronger than our God. And that there is nothing really able to derail or defeat the saving power of his gospel and the proliferation of his church. But that is not to say that it's always literally smooth sailing here in the book of Acts, like, like there are shipwrecks here. And there are, there are spiritual derailments uh, that occur. 
So as we make our way through Acts, we're going to read stories of great triumphs in the church, but also accounts of tragic mistreatments and opposition to the church and persecution of those who would be devoted Christ followers. Acts reminds us that the Apostle Paul was right on when he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you really want to stand up for your faith, you can expect to be maligned for it. That if you really want to be serious about holding firm to your convictions, you can expect that people are going to criticize you for that. That you are going to be thought less of by some people in some circles because you believe in Jesus. Paul was right. If you want to live godly, if you want to toe the line, if you want to follow the holy living, which is God's will for all of us, that is laid out in scripture, you're going to pay a price for it. You know, for the longest time, I think if we were honest in this country, we've not paid a price. It has been, in a sense, Christianity has been the state religion, if we want to put it that way. And even if somebody didn't agree with you because you were Christian, they weren't likely to criticize you because of it. For a long time, anybody who disagreed with you was, was in the minority, and so they didn't bother to say anything, probably. It would have cost them something. But that has changed. And if you're not prepared for this new reality, you're going to be a very bitter, angry person. And asking consistently why. Why can't we put the, the nativity scene on City Hall? Why can't we pray in the schools? Why can't we? Why can't we? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me answer your why right now. Because you're standing up for Jesus. That's why. And don't be feeling picked on. and Don't be feeling special. This is, comes with the territory. And as we, as we get into this book, we're going to see more and more. Because we have this idea, right? Well, if I'm doing the right thing, God's just always going to bless me and it's always going to go great. We all have that in our minds, even if we don't want to say it out loud because it sounds dumb. We still believe it. We still get irritated when things go wrong. Like, come on, God, you owe me something. Of course not. We're going to see these disciples walking into difficult situations, some of them will pay the price of their faith with their life because that's what it means to follow Jesus. And we're going to say, you know, to be a true disciple of Jesus, we should expect to, to participate, to partake in the sufferings of Jesus. And the Bible actually tells us that. But we haven't had to live it, friends. Not on a grand scale, not on a societal scale. And I'm not saying, you know, who knows, maybe we won't. But it feels kind of like we are. It feels kind of like we will. I want you to have a reasonable expectation of what it means to follow Jesus. We don't blow smoke. We don't tell you it's going to be easy. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and you have to take up your cross. So be prepared to set yourself aside and be prepared to encounter difficulty. This is what it means to be a Christian. Not only is that going to happen to the, to the people we read about in the book of Acts, we will be astounded perhaps by their wonderful response because they were rejoicing. <laughs> not because it hurt, not because people didn't like them, but because God had counted them worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. So Acts is really one of these books 
that helps us as Christians grow up, I think. Because we read that, I'm like, really? Anyway, we may have a smaller church by the time we're done here, but I, I hope not. I think we'll have a stronger church by the time we're done here, right? Because, yes, really, this is what it means to follow the Lord. What's the genre of Acts? Well, it matters what the genre is. What is the style, the writing style? Because that, that informs us how we can read it, okay? So we always want to understand the genre of the books that we're trying to read. You don't read Psalms the same way you read a letter or Ecclesiastes the same way you would read prophecy or Revelation, apocalyptic literature. So the genre here of Acts is historical narrative, and we say this, at its core, Acts is history. Acts is history. It chronicles the real events and the real actions of specific people in specific places and at specific times. So Acts is history, and because it is history, it is necessarily descriptive. It is descriptive. Okay? We don't really want our historians to be creative, do we? We want them to report the truth, what happened, the facts. When we get creative with history, who doesn't get creative with history? But when it's the Bible, we want to make sure that we understand history is descriptive, okay? History reports. And so we have to be cautious when we read this book that we don't make it overly prescriptive, which is a flaw that some people make when they come to this book. They say, see, this is how it happened in the early church, and therefore this is how it's supposed to happen right now. I would say, well, I don't know that we necessarily are going to always have seven deacons, or that we're going to begin the healing by my shadow ministry, or things that we read in there that are one-offs and one-of-a-kinds, and general ideas that we sometimes get confused and make them prescriptive and very specific ideas. You know, for instance, in, in Acts we'll read about have you, you, know, you should be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and there are some people who, who literally would think if you, if you are not baptized, in only the name of the Lord Jesus, then you haven't been baptized. And there are other people who say, well, if you're not baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, then you haven't been baptized because that's how Jesus said to do it in Matthew. Those things do not have to be at odds. We do not have to fight about that stuff. But that's what happens when we get prescriptive. I literally baptized a young woman and her two daughters many, many years ago in George's Pond in Franklin. And these were brand new to the faith had come to know Jesus and wanted to be baptized and right after their baptism somebody uh, confronted them and asked how it was done and in whose name were you baptized and they said well, I think he baptized us in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and the person said well then you weren't baptized that is not the conversations you should have with a new believer that is not okay Acts is descriptive it was not written, as some have interpreted it, to dictate the normal structure or expectation of the church today. It is a divine description of the Holy Spirit's activity in the birth and the development of the early Christian church. It's about the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower men and women in their work of glorifying Jesus and advancing 
the kingdom of God. Acts is about the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower men and women in their work of glorifying Jesus, which is what we're here for, and advancing the kingdom of God. Now, it is primarily history, but that does not mean that it is irrelevant to us individually or corporately. It certainly doesn't mean that it has nothing to say to the era in which we live. On the contrary, we come across in the book of Acts many timeless truths that have great implications for how we should conduct ourselves individually and corporately. So we'll be parsing those out as we go along. It's not going to be hard for us as individuals or as a church to extract and apply these truths. Acts is a narrative. I said it was historical narrative. I think you know what narrative means, but just to be sure, Acts is a story. So when you're reading along, you expect to find all the elements of a story. You find the plot. You find a subplot. You find characters coming and going. You find it ebbs and flows. That's what a story does. Acts is unique among the books of the Bible because it contains uh, a lot of speeches. It's just unique that way. No other book contains that many speeches. Acts has a lot of colorful characters. We'll come across many extraordinary events. We'll just read it and go, really? Yeah, really. I mean, Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch, you've got to be kidding me. Baptized and then <laughs> taken away. Like, really? How do you get on that? How do you get on that train? Acts is, I think Acts is one of the most exciting books of the Bible. And I hope that you will find it to be that way if you don't believe that already. And I hope that um, for your own good, but also because I was to tell you we're going to be here for a while. Um, yeah, we'll be preaching and studying the book of Acts now. That This is going to take us a year or more, I suspect. A few things that I hope God will do through this study. Seven hopes. They, these are not all the hopes, but seven that I have for us that I can say right out loud real quick. The first is this, that we will, we will recognize and be comforted by the sovereignty of God and the affairs of his people. That we will see it and that we will be comforted by the sovereignty of God and the affairs of his people. Sovereignty being one of those big church words that means God is in charge. God is over all. And the fact that God is overall, we used to sing that song, he's got the whole world in his hands, he absolutely does. This reality should bring us comfort. Even when it looks like things are going sideways, even when things aren't lining up, they're not going the way that we want them to go, God is over all. And we'll see that. We will see that not everything goes perfect in the lives of these characters in the book of Acts. And yet God is orchestrating it all. He's doing that in the book of Acts just like he's doing it today, okay? So hopefully we'll start to see God's sovereignty and, and be comforted more by God's sovereignty that will make us a stronger people and able to endure even more because God is in control and God is good. Second, I hope that we will find a, in this study a renewed passion for the church that Jesus is building. A renewed passion. I think it would be an understatement if we said that passion for the church has waned over the last few years. And there are some very natural reasons for that. Why, how could it not in, in some ways, right? I mean, for instance, United, just take us, you little United Baptist Church, right? Our, our, our 
vision, our mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ through worship, fellowship, and service. And over the last two and a half years, at various times, we haven't been able to do any of those things. So that's just us. We reel from the effects of that, not being able to worship with one another, not being able to fellowship with one another the way that we want to, not being able to plug our lives into serving the Lord. And the natural drift from that is that we find other things to do. So it's what people do. They don't sit around and say, well, I would serve, but now that I can, I'll just sit. Well, some people do that. But most people who have a heart for service are going to find a way to serve somewhere else or find fellowship in some other venue or go worship somewhere else or online where you can stay in your jammies. I hope the Holy Spirit will bring us to a renewed passion, care, love, devotion to the church that Jesus is building because he's still building his church and we're part of it. I, I don't want us to be part of something that is like doldrums and misery. I've got to go to that thing again. No, not at all. We, 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 we want to be passionate and excited about what God is up to. Thirdly, that we would have a greater understanding of God, the Holy Spirit, and sensitivity to his work in our lives. We could criticize our brothers and sisters who have more of a charismatic persuasion and, and say there are excesses and abuses of the Spirit over there. And they could look back at us Baptists and say, you're dead as a doornail. You know, it, it goes both ways. The pendulum swings. Yes, yes, of course, there will be excesses and abuses all over the place. Some people who attribute everything to the Holy Spirit that really isn't his, and some people who don't even understand that the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a person and not an it. And that's kind of how, we, it depends on how you were raised and what you were taught, and, and there's plenty of room for all of us to grow in this and I do hope that's what happens. I hope that we open our eyes and receive a greater understanding of God the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, that we would have a deeper love for and trust in the word of God. Always, always, always want us to have that. That's always a goal. That we would, we would love this word. That we would trust this word. That we would continue to read it and see how true it is and how right it is and how it resonates and how it stands up and how it is connected. Isn't it wonderful when you're reading a passage of scripture in one place and you find it's over here in another place and then it's over in another place and the, the continuity of all these different books is amazing because it is a divine book. So we always hope that we would develop a deeper love for and a trust in the word of God. Fifth, that we will be uh, come away ready and better equipped to live the Christian life in the face of opposition, hostil hostility, and ignorance of our beliefs. Okay? That we would be better equipped. <laughs> if, we, if we would consider responding to the current situation that we find ourselves in in America regarding our Christianity the same way we do to a forecast of a blizzard. Why do you have to get ready for a blizzard? Why do, you, why do you need three gallons of milk for a blizzard? But why do you have to get ready? Why do we do that? Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. 
We want to be prepared. We don't want to be without. We want to withstand. We want to overcome. Okay, good. We know how to respond to drama in the Weather Channel. What about what's happening around us? Are we preparing ourselves to be faithful, right? Paul says it in Ephesians, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. But a lot of people won't, and Jesus actually predicts that. When the tribulation comes, many will fall away. I don't want any member of United Baptist to be tempted in that way and to forfeit Christ. No. So I want us to be better equipped because, friends, the likelihood is it isn't going to get easier, but it doesn't have to, does it? It doesn't have to for us to be okay and for the gospel to go forward, which is what we're here to do, glorify Jesus. Six, that we would have an increased zeal for this great gospel, that it would be known to the ends of the earth. I've I got to tell you, I don't think that my mission zeal is fully developed, just being honest with you. And I think I kind of kind of grew up in a way that it was sort of like, well, I got mine, so good luck. Now, that sounds dismissive, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be dismissive, but you know what I mean, is that there's something about salvation that if we don't understand that it is, isn't just for us, that we can be content to be the reservoir of the salvation versus the tributary or, or the, the living water coming out of us. Does that make sense to you, or am I I'm the only one? Okay, I need help, but... Well, you already knew that. But an increased zeal only because Jesus said he would build the church. But what did he say? How is he going to do it? You will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. And you will be sending this gospel out into these ever-expanding circles. And so it's just good to have in our hearts this desire to know that we can be part of God's work well beyond our own place. And we do some of that, and it's beautiful the Dominican, lately I think in the Ukraine, and we have made in Haiti, and oh yeah. But an increased seal is what I'm hoping might happen here. I would love it if, if we always would become more missions-minded, but I would love it even as our children are raised, that they would grow up also with this zeal to go and to tell and to preach and to teach in these other environments where the gospel is needed. Last, that we would be encouraged, even hopeful, as we see the power of God and his gospel changing lives and bearing fruit wherever it is uh, proclaimed. That we would be encouraged, even hopeful. And I use those words on purpose because I think people are feeling discouraged to a degree and maybe even hopeless. But as we read these accounts of God's great power and we see how the gospel changes lives, and we see that it does what it always does. Paul wrote about that, I think, in the book of Galatians, that it's going to bear fruit. It absolutely will, so don't give up. As we make our way through Acts, we're going to see again and again the uh, assuring theme that God sovereignly works in the lives of his people to advance his mission in this world. And brothers and sisters, I, I just want to say that as it was true in the time of Acts, it is true now. Jesus is building his church. He hasn't quit on it. Jesus is building his church. The forces of evil, even death itself, could not and cannot stop him. Thus, through trials and tribulations and tumult of her war, 
the church of Jesus Christ remains unstoppable. Samuel Stone was an English clergyman in the 1800s and he wrote many songs and poems. One in particular that is very well known song uh, written in response to what he at the time perceived to be a tax on the Christian church. So imagine that, 1800s, attacks on the Christian church. First century, attacks on the Christian church. 2022, attacks on the Christian church. This is our normal, and we've been under fire for a long time. So Samuel Stone wrote this song that we have sung many times, and is often the case, um, not all the lyrics find their way into the hymnals. Mostly because there's a lot of lyrics. And somebody says, we've got to shorten that up a little bit. And this was the case with the third stanza of this particular song, which is, uh, is going to probably be even more meaningful to you if you can imagine it to the tune of the church's one foundation. The church shall never perish her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her and strive to see her fail, against both foe and traitor, she ever shall prevail. 